Hello everyone, I'm Lawrence Hill and I'm Dave Kemble and this is the Practicus Digital Transformation Podcast. Hello and welcome to the next in our Digital Transformation Podcast. Today we are joined by Dave Griffin. With a background of global scale manufacturing as well as innovative startups, Dave's recent career has combined his practitioner experience with academia, learning about next generation technology and business science. Through his spin out company, Surrey Innovations, Dave now works intuitively with companies and their people, utilising both practical experience and academic research to make the best decisions possible when considering their future fortunes. Dave, welcome to the show, and as always, First question, what does digital mean to you? I, I, I knew you'd start with the easy one, Dave. Thanks very much. Um, the, the, the D word. Um, it's, uh, I almost actually liken it to cloud. It's the fact that we didn't really understand what cloud was until everyone started using it. Digital's the same, I think. Um, and perhaps contentious for a digital transformation series of podcasts. But um, uh, I, I do find the D word quite sort of distractive almost in so much that um, uh, if you look at it in the dictionary, it, it basically talks about digits and ones and zeros and measuring things. And that doesn't really come across as a, a business scenario. Um, and uh, so my idea of digital transformation is, is literally to reset. It's the point where, well, OK, let's talk about the business. Sure. Um, and let's use the fact that digital is trying to establish the use of technology to change a business, but come at it from the business point of view. So uh, my, my <laughs> what does digital mean to me? It's a segue into talking about uh, uh, enterprise and business functions and people and skills and capabilities. Uh, I don't typically go down the tech and the digital route as far as my approach is concerned. Interesting. So when you're supporting or advising a client that is interested in innovation or automation, where do you begin? I immediately ask why, Lawrence. I mean, the, um, I'm, uh, you know, if you go back to things like business model canvases and, and the what and the why and the push and the pull and goodness knows what you're trying to do as an organization, um, my, uh, as I say, I kind of take technology out of the room straight away and I said, well, okay, you know, do you understand why your enterprise has got to where it is today? Do you understand fully why you've got the skills and capabilities and what they're capable of? Um, and are you, have you got a, a really cognizant understanding of, of where you want to go to? And is that a reasonable step forward? So um, I walk into a room of people say, well, that we, uh, one example would have been the fact that there, there was a leadership team that were very highly motivated in bringing in, in sort of ideation and change and what they were doing for the enterprise, but all the ideas were at the board level, not coming up through the organization. So they got me involved to try and get people to, and I use the word interstitially, start thinking about how they can improve the business. And my view would be that uh, you, uh, if you can get everyone thinking innovatively, then the, the, the whys and the whats of what you're doing, either at your individual workstation or at a, a more functional level, begin to uh, fill up a, a jigsaw puzzle of what we're trying to achieve. So I will walk into a room and I'll say, well, okay, why am I here? What are we trying to achieve? What's fundamentally your outcome? Is it achievable? How do we deliver it? Uh, I don't even go down the digital stroke tech route. Interesting. And uh, that's quite, again, innovation is a very, very broad term. And I can imagine when you, uh, getting people to think innovatively must be uh, quite hard initially, but once 
you get a few ideas on the table. I should imagine things start opening up and there's a lot of people build on other ideas. How, how do you even start that process with people to get them to think innovatively? I think, the, so the first thing that comes to mind there, Dave, is, is, is trust. And it's a weird way to answer your question. Um, if, if you walk into a room, you, you're typically involved in, okay, people you know, don't necessarily accept you warmly because there's going to be change. There will be more work to do over and above uh, your, your business as usual. There will be perhaps even risk to your own work because if you go down the route of we need to, uh, to optimise, we need to automate, whatever, you could be talking to individuals that saying, well, why would I get involved in that process? Because I might be losing my job. I could be talking myself out of, uh, out of a job here. So I tend to get the um, the idea going is that the, the reason I've walked into a room is that because this particular enterprise, whoever it is, um, wants to expand and expand rapidly and do different things. So it's about building capability rather than streaming things down. So the first thing I do is is get people to trust the process, that this is not about trying to automate and do you out of a job type scenario. It's actually mm-hmm. about expanding automating the stuff that might not be so interesting for you, but get you thinking more creatively about how you can do your job and add more into the process. And once you get, once you get across that threshold, you're absolutely right. It's staggering to know where the millennials, where the experienced people come from by way of what they think they can add to the process and how they can contribute. Um, and, and almost without exception, uh, holistically fantastic ideas. And, and whether it's top down or bottom up, people are, are, are impressed and see where the talent comes from. And, and generating that sort of symbiotic uh, environment is, is, is uh, totally rewarding. It's fascinating. I've, I've never seen it not work, if you like, in that regard. Brilliant. That's, that's really interesting. It, uh, you talked about the millennials there and that the, I think sometimes uh, there's no such thing as a stupid question. I think we touched on one of these uh, with, uh, with Sharon in a previous podcast where one of the millennials asked, why do you send emails? And to us, we think, well, why wouldn't you send emails? But the question remained, well, but yeah, but why? So well, to communicate, but why email? Yeah. Oh, that's a good point, actually, because with WhatsApp or something like that, you can see when that's been delivered. You can see when it's been read. There's there's more benefits to it. They felt they could do it quicker. So it's really interesting that that innovative thought process and, and as you say, allowing people to have that forum to feel they can ask what might they might be internally thinking. Cool, this is going to be a silly question, uh, but actually will will allow you to to then look back and go, well, hold on. That, that makes perfect sense. Why, why are we doing that? And what can the, we do instead? The, the, the absolute minimum you get out of that scenario, Dave, is the fact that someone's actually wanting to contribute and they're actually engaged. They're on the bus. And, and yeah. at, at a behavioural level, that's already great. You know, it, to be fair, it could be a... I mean, I've done it all the time, every day. You know, I ask dumb questions. You know, I was, I was with my in-laws the other day and I, uh, they said, could you, could you replace this bulb? I cannot believe I'm sharing this with you, but it's an indication <laughs> of how free I am in, in sharing knowledge, um, which wasn't knowledge. I said, well, could you turn the light on so I can judge the wattage of the bulb? And they said, it doesn't work, Dave. And I, I can't yeah. believe that in trying to help my in-laws of a bulb that needs replacing because he couldn't reach it, I said, well, can you switch it on so I know roughly what the wattage is? I mean, that's, you know, it's ridiculous, isn't it? But, but uh, if, if nothing else, it's an indicator of the fact that I was trying to, uh, I was trying to show interest and promise. And I think, I think that's where there is no bad question that you can ask because there's always a context from where it was asked 
um, the, the greatest threat of getting involved in innovation, when you percolate down into the organization, and this is you know, that, that example where a lot of the ideas come from a small bunch of people, but how, you, how do you get it interstitially coming up through the organization? The, the biggest challenge there that you have to grapple is the fact that um, people come out with great ideas, you have to give feedback. You've got to have the loop back to say, great idea, Dave. Putting the light on would have been brilliant, but it didn't quite fit in that environment because the bulb was broken. But you're thinking it right because you were trying to judge how to yeah. specify what the solution looked like. And, and I've just made that off the top of my head, and who knows how that sounds. But, um, but, uh, but I think the – so my experience is the fact that when you get people thinking in an ideative way, innovative, not with any fear, you know, they're, they're trustful of the fact that the reason they're engaged in this process is to build a business, to grow it, to, to do the stuff that's actually more interesting and more creative rather than the more repetitive stuff that you can automate. Once you get across that trust and you begin to have the process that does start to reward that, um, it, it's almost like you, you, you then get a tiger by the tail. And it's a question of, well, okay, how do you then go from ideation to selection to scale? Uh, and it's that process of intuitive decision-making when you don't really know what's going on, but you can actually get the, the, the multiples of the masses to scenario plan and you get a, you know, a, a pretty good picture of what's going on. How do you ensure that the right questions are being asked right at the start of that journey? Absolutely. And that's why I come from a business aspect, Lawrence, because you, um, you can bring in tech, you can automate, you can use intelligence and artificial intelligence to look at data, and we'll come on to that perhaps a bit later on, and all these fantastic things that can process uh, the, the information. But data isn't knowledge. Uh, you know that. That's a famous Einstein phrase or, or statement. You, know, you can have as much data and, and, and information as you want, but it's not knowledge. It doesn't help you make decisions. So the, the essence of, uh, of trying to get people to, um, to be more intuitive uh, as to how they plug into the business model uh, is, is priceless. And I think, um, uh, as I say, I think leadership teams benefit from it. They then start to identify the, the, the main movers and shakers within their organization. Uh, and they, they can build on sort of uh, business models that they otherwise wouldn't have thought of. It's, uh, it is an ambiguous and VUCA environment, if you like. Uh, VUCA being sort of volatility, uncertainty, complexity, Ambiguity. Uh, that's probably the first time I've managed to remember all four of those in one sentence. But um, uh, the, the decision processes that you need to go to have to be intuitive. There has to be a, a sand pit that's governed. That means you don't break anything when you fall out of the sand pit, but you've got this fantastically sort of wealth of, of, uh, of activity going on that people can really absorb themselves into. But it, um, uh, but it becomes a, a knowledge pool as opposed to a data pool. Interesting. Yeah, thank you for that. And, and with regards to... What we're seeing a lot of the moment, and I know this is the digital transformation podcast, but digital was the buzzword for the last couple of years, right? Uh, and, and everyone had to do digital. Um, what we're seeing now is automation, uh, AI is very much at, at the front of people's minds. Um, and I know that's a, an area that you've looked at, Dave, uh, fairly extensively. Uh, in, in terms of the benefit realization of automation and and how to measure that have you seen that change from sector to sector i guess the question i'm asking here is 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 there a uh, are there certain sectors that benefit more from going through automation than others uh absolutely i think um so coming at that question from a slightly different angle um you know studies uh, that we may be familiar with you know in future of work 
Um, you know, they, they talk about the fact that the, the wealth creation that's come out of automation is astonishing in the last sort of, 20 years, and hundreds of billions of pounds worth of greater uh, revenues for, for people earning greater salaries because the, the skills and capabilities of what they're doing are, are more valued, etc. And, uh, and automation has undoubtedly uh, taken away the more mundane or repetitive tasks. I mean, that's... Um, that's in the, the, the sort of ages, as I say, it's a little bit like using cloud as a, a recent statement. You know, cloud or, or local clouds or private clouds have been around for decades almost with regards to how you manage your, your infrastructure, as has automation and, and, and innovation. Obviously, it's, um, you know, <laughs> the, the, the internal combustion engine was an automatic version of a horse. That's why it's horsepower. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, where would we be if we hadn't automated or, you know, people hadn't sort of, uh, you know, <laughs> trying to think, uh, would it, was it been the um, Ferdinand Benz? I don't know who, who came up with that sort of idea early on. But, um, uh, you know, automation has been going on all the time. And it, and it is about trying to uh, identify areas where things can be safer, things can be more productive or less cost, there can be a better quality of whatever you're trying to produce. Um, and, and I think, um, uh, so in that regard, automation does fit into certain areas that uh, at, a, at a sort of guttural level, it's, it's more to do with manufacturing and repetitive pieces and, and sort of scale. So you know, a lot of automation into service centers and support centers, voice, uh, voice systems, if you like, uh, and call centers, etc. I think the other end of the, 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 the wedge, if you like, with regards to automation, and you are moving into artificial intelligence now, is, is where you begin to go to the bleeding edge, where massive uh, progress in, in medical science, uh, in, in sort of biometrics of people, well-being, uh, those sort of areas. I mean, they're, they're astonishing areas of, of security as well. We were, we were doing work on, on biometrics of people going through airport terminals, trying to determine whether these people had terrorist intent or not, purely by the fact that you could give them a device, they could have a wearable, you could be watching them, and you can learn about how people react and, and cope in situations and, and begin to almost sort of triage uh, scenarios where people can be, be determined in that regard. Health science is, is phenomenal with regards to AI. Uh, you know, the idea now that they can do virtual clinical trials in some areas, they're, they're creating disease and, and conditions that means that medical trials and radiation therapies and, and, and putting people through that process can be avoided, but also the trials process can be massively accelerated. So, you know, from, from the early days of automation where uh, you, you might do th something because it was going to be damaging and it would hurt, to the point where actually we can begin to save lives and make a massive societal impact on, on some of the benefits of, of, of AI... Um, it's kind of everywhere, really, and, and I don't think of many cases where it, it fails. I, th I think it's more of a cultural thing. We might come on to that later, but failure typically is about does the business model work or, um, or, or culturally does it not um, accept where the data lies sort of thing, and there's more sort of softer issues as to why things aren't taken forward. Interesting. Thank you for that. I sometimes have an analogy of trying to explain something, and I go off on one, and we can't work out how on earth we got there, but, it's, but I'm trying to get the message across. And I, I started making up a story about the fourth road bridge. And it was about the fact that, well, you know, paint technology back in the day, it only ever lasted about five years. So they had to repaint the bridge every five years. I said, but wouldn't it be silly if you actually got new paints coming through that it was more resistant to corrosion and it stuck better and it stopped the rust and all that sort of stuff. And it lasted 20 years and you paid a lot more money for this fabulous paint and it might even still be red. Um, uh, but actually, you still paint, you still repainted it every five years because you didn't bother changing the process, and it was it was it was a completely different sort of conversation I was having. But it was along the lines of the fact that 
it's not just about changing the process. It's not, sorry, pardon me. It's not just about changing the technology and how you can do things and how things can be better. If you don't change the process and what people do to take the benefit from it, it's a waste of time. All you're doing is spending more money for paint and, and recoating it when you don't need to. And, and that, that as a metaphor, that was something which, uh, which is quite prevalent to what Lawrence had mentioned earlier, is that it, it's about digging into the processes as well and, uh, and making sure that it's, it's not just about tech. It's about bringing the people with you um, and, and, and fundamentally changing everyone's world for the better so that they enjoy the work better. Yeah, I love that. I think that's a really good. I, I, it's, a, it's a good anecdote, as you it's said. Not fa- I suspect. I suspect it's not factually correct. And let's be fair. It, I don't know how long the paint does last on the Fourth Road Bridge, but the essence is uh, is there. Sort of. Well, thing. I learned. So I always thought it was the Humber Bridge, but it's probably they probably do it on both. <laughs> so. Yeah, no, I think I think the fourth road. <laughs> actually, it's it's not the road. I mean, it's a technical point. It's actually the the fourth road. It's the rail bridge, isn't it? It's the one that's. Um, Yes, it's, I, it's I know the, the one you the, mean. The red, because it's, yeah. it's it's the one, and you're quite right. They famously used to they, they'd finish painting it and then mm. draw it, go down the other end and start again, and start exactly. Yeah, what, what a contract that yeah, was. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but behavioural science is a whole new area. You know, the, the, it comes back to that point. Behavioural science is fascinating. I mean, that, that's a whole new subject. But how do you? How do you motivate? I mean, it's some anecdotal stories about people getting into a lift and, and they did some studies that everyone was facing away from the door and people that went into the lift turned around and faced the back wall sort of thing. Well, why would you do that? Yeah. Because everyone looks at the door or the buttons, don't they? Yeah. But if everyone else is staring at the wall, behavioural science suggests that you, you go with the flow. It's like, it's like sort of herding. Yeah. Uh, and and you, you can get into that space with regards to things that are cognitive and automatic with regards to change management you know it's fascinating the whole bag of worms of course but um but it's a it's a fa- it's a phenomenal area with regards to how you comes back to that you know what role would you like to have you'd like to have a role where you optimize people's fun and ability to do things brilliantly as best they can because then you, your jigsaw puzzle will be absolutely in tune sort of thing but if you're trying to do get people to change and, and do things differently and fundamentally they're not hardwired that way it's a devil's task to, to achieve that so behavioral science in project management is is phenomenal fascinating yeah it's, it's interesting I, I used to work at the airport many many moons ago back in the 90s and they used to regularly change signage in the airport just to see how the the general public reacted to certain things mm-hmm. and e- even simple things like putting a bollard in the middle of a, a concourse which you'd think why the hell would you do that would make such a difference because you, to your point there everyone would suddenly go well we all want to walk on the left hand side uh, and actually or everyone will spread out for example but actually by putting that bollard there people's mindset would go well, hold on, we're all going to go like we do with roads and then we'll all walk and then mm. anyone coming this way is going to go that way. You're not going to get that mass of people walking together. And it's literally just by putting a simple bollard in the, in the way. Mm. Uh, but yeah, it, still the people coming up to you when you'd have a huge number four and it'd say gate four and they come up to you and say, where's gate four? And you think, mm. flipping it. <laughs> well done, you found it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, we, di- we didn't, you know, we, we didn't talk about, di- I mean, it's AI related in so much that it's digital twins. I mean, you, you talk about sort of, um, uh, you know, uh, habitual habits of drivers. We, were, we did some work with Kia, Kia Highways on road safety and coned off areas um, and the intrusions on cones. And we were, we were looking at using sound-based technology to hear anomalies that gives you an advance warning that actually there might be a vehicle coming down the motorway at high speed that actually is either in the wrong lane or in the wrong place 
uh, or that cones have been hit because actually a lot of workers get injured not by the vehicle but by the fact that a big truck will clip a cone the, the cone travels through the air at 30 miles an hour and it weighs about 15 kilos yeah. so that there's you know there's things like that so road worker safety and using digital twins of what the background noise of a safe site sounds like and if there's an anomaly that with through wearables as well that you can look at you know, what site works better than others and how can you improve safety of people? So that's another example where you know, AI and road safety and, and all that sort of area and, uh, is, is just percolating through to fantastic opportunities that you just can't, you, you can't grapple into one 30-minute conversation, I guess. But uh, Yeah, yeah, that's, that's fascinating as well, yeah. <laughs> well, and, and the reason that I, I thought of that was because you, you put a cone in the middle of a, of a concourse and people trip over it, whatever, Kia Highways were always saying we put the matrix signs up, slow down. You know, road workers in the in the in the road, forty miles an hour, and you know, and I'm one of them. Yeah. I'm, you know, I'm thinking, why forty miles an hour? You know, it's not raining. I can't see another car. There's nothing down the carriageway. I don't slow to forty miles an hour. Yeah, yeah. But and they say, but there's a reason why you're trying to manage expectations and you're trying to deal with people's behaviour when they're in the car. Um, and that's a little bit like project management. People stick with what they know. Are there parts of the globe where innovation in some of these areas is likely to proceed faster than others? Uh, uh, Lawrence, it's uh, it's mind-boggling to be honest with you, because uh, you know we 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 struggle with technology today to deal with the amount of data that's generated and how to process it. Um, and you know, in in a few years' time, there's going to be 50 billion connected devices, machine-to-machine devices. Um, I, I, I do hope, because it's one of my passions, is, is um, that we, we get ubiquitous 5G, um, you know, it, even if it was ubiquitous 4G, to be honest with you. The, the, we did some work uh, a few years ago now where we were, we were polling major global organizations about, well, okay, what's your priority? To have, inverted commas, a, a bigger pipe with, great ba- with bigger data bundles coming down it called 5G type thing. I'm being very simplistic about this. Or would you like a smaller pipe that goes to the middle of the the Sahara Desert sort of thing, and you can plant plant sort of trees there and, and irrigate and, and get data from there. And the reality was that we would take any, you know, there's still almost half the planet is outside of broadband and internet connections. Um, and, and when you consider the, the shifts geologically with regards to climate controls and, uh, and how things are being irrigated, and goodness knows what, the, I think the idea of a ubiquitous connectivity around the planet, whatever the, the generation is, um, is a massive enabler. Um, and and, and it's, it's fascinating with regards to where that'll take us, because the, 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 the intelligence that we'll have to do the right thing in the right place, the, the opportunity to grow the right crops, to put the planet in a better place with regards to its balance on, on net zero, on, on the, uh, the opportunity to mitigate some of the, the toxic, toxic, toxicity that we have around the planet. That's more gaseous rather than anything else I might add. Um, uh, and, I, and I think the um, uh, AI and, as I say, into machines to machines, etc., is just generating far too much data. So the, we will need to go down AI routes almost indefinitely to try and process the amount of data to get some meaningful... comes back to that Einstein statement you know, information isn't really much until you turn it into knowledge. And I think the, the, the major generational step will be the ability for enterprises to fundamentally understand how they can take their data and interpret it and synthesize it into something that's meaningful. And that's, at the moment, I still th- see that as a major barrier because you either rely on technology companies that can either overinflate what the art of the possible might be 
Or if you look at your own enterprise, how on earth do you have the skills and capabilities to deliver change that's so impactful? So there is a gap there, and it's a quantum leap that you need to take internally to get skills and capabilities, or externally with regards to what your outsourcing and your technology partners look like. So that whole that whole thing needs to be processed and, and percolate down into something and I think the the genesis of that may well be how you start to engage and how you start to innovate and how you have your discovery-led processes on what uh, what your horizon looks like and how you how you begin to create scenarios and, and build business plans on something that is fundamentally unknown but is trying to predict the future with the trends that you've got available to you and and that will begin to align your thought processes how you have how you select your partners what infrastructure you put in place how you train your people because you won't be able to employ them all in um, and and how you then sort of uh, then program manage that to a to an outcome if you like fascinating it's it's interesting isn't it you, as you say you're going to get more and more data available and you're going to have to constantly update how you're interpreting that data and using it and, and improving the ai to make sure that the data that's coming in is interpreted correctly for the needs of your business um so, so with that in mind you, you talked about that where do you begin um element when we, when we were speaking earlier what, what's the starting point when you're working with your clients talking about innovation uh automation etc uh, how do you go about ensuring that the right questions are being asked to the right people at the beginning of yeah. that journey <coughs> it's a it's a lovely moment and again a little anecdotal story we were, we were doing a, a, a sort of workshop program where we were looking at sort of um, AI versus EI, as in emotional intelligence, because you know, at the end of the day, I, I do believe, as a subject, as a sort of adjunct to what you've just asked there, Dave, is the fact that will machines think and be able to make sort of value-based decisions, or are we going to genetically engineer people, a bit like the Matrix, and, and sort of, you know, engineer people down to be able to make make decisions down, and that, that sounds a bit macabre, or or are we going to make machines come up to the the way we can think, uh, and I, and I don't know what that solution looks like, but um, uh, when you're making decisions, we have what we call the, the project dilemma. You're trying to make very impactful decisions at a point in the, pro the program design, if you like, the discovery phase, where the impact and the direction of the, the decision you're making is massive. The amount of information you've got around you that is substantive and perhaps reliable is very low. So how do you fill the gap, basically? So to answer your question, we... We tend to do a lot of scenario planning. We tend to look at bleeding edge research. We tend to try and amalgamate different sources and triage various, uh, uh, how can you add into content to get people thinking in the right way, a little bit like the innovation piece of getting everyone thinking the same way, never a bad question to ask. Um, uh, and and my, my experience is that you run multiple and parallel sort of in, what we call innovation sprints. And they're basically just samples. We're playing with ideas. We're, we're putting nodes of thought processes in there that have a, have a nexus of, of trying to pull together a, a whole idea of what a business model might look if it's something that's particularly bleeding edge. And you're trying to p build a jigsaw and, and generate those images and, and what that looks like from unknowns. You know, the good old uh, Donald Rumsfeld, you know, there's loads of unknowns, even unknowns that you don't know about yet. How, do you, how on earth do you predict those? So play around with innovation sprints, you play around, you're getting everyone's thought processes in and everyone, that collective knowledge, if you like, comes together and you're trying to plough a field and a little furrow there that says, well, actually, with everything that we've now understood at that point, that date stamp, that's the best decision we can possibly make. And then you go agile, you move, you move along that line 
You make it, okay, let's align behind that. That's our decision. That's our selection. How do we scale that? You're forever adding more data into that process. You stop, you do more innovation sprints, you do more scenario planning, and you just basically refine your thoughts as you go along because it gives you an opportunity to then plug in developments and journey learnings as you go along. And it's the best possible way. It's a, it's a highly discovery-led, intuitive process about how you make the best decision when, when actual information and intelligence is low. Fantastic. And just to add into that, sorry, With it, that that's not just the, the the senior management team that are doing that. You you get that it, that that sort of interstitial competence and 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 granularity, if you like, because you fundamentally are engaging the whole company that has an opportunity to you know uh, add add the the uh, the will of everyone, if you like, in that regard. So it it burrs off the edges of some of the erroneous pieces that you might have early on. It sounds like it it's really easy to get bogged down in that sort of art of the possible. So how do you, and do you need to self-regulate progression in, in order to avoid drowning in experiments? Uh, I, th I think, well, there's, there's two questions there, Lawrence. Um, the, the governance and the self-regulation piece does worry me. We, we already have those problems in, in social media, um, the metaverse, uh, online abuse, etc. Um, how you know uh, cryptocurrencies that are perhaps a little bit more out of shape than they should be with regards to governance and the it, it's almost like policy cannot keep up with innovation and, and change uh, and that that's a fundamental worry. Um, uh, uh, but but I think you have to you have to take that on board as far as getting everyone can you over process and can you over um, enthuse people to try and change an enterprise, how do you manage that? That's the tiger by the tail piece, if you like. That's where I think you need to have sort of strong processes that say that there's, there's, you need to manage this with business as usual. You still need to run the business. You still need to do your day job. But actually, there's an element of if we can automate some areas, if we can buy some more time, if we can generate more time in your calendar to start, a set, to to start morphing more innovative and ideative thinking into your agenda as a normal systematic approach rather than oh well, let's have a pizza and in innovate at three o'clock on a Friday afternoon then I think you'll find that it, it becomes more manageable at a personal level it's almost like you break it down into uh, an individual level at an enterprise uh, scale sort of thing so uh, how you in my experience how you manage that is you put top level management saying we will feedback we will we will reward we will have the communication in place we will give feedback of the alignment as to where we're going and it gets everyone on board uh, obviously yes it does get more complicated with regards to when you penetrate into an organization but the the strong messages of alignment are so key the strong um, endorsement from CEO and, and other senior leaders is so important um, that you, you fundamentally need mean that the, the effort that you're putting in is, is going to contribute and is in the right lane, is in the right lane, shall we say? It's almost a cultural shift then uh, to get people to think in that in a new way because uh, certainly in, in my world uh, it feels like a lot of the time you're you're firefighting. And when you have a new, I guess, a new thought process of we need to make sure we're constantly innovating and coming up with ideas and we're sharing those ideas. Actually, to your point, you if you put time aside, actually, you're going to get the most out of it because is that where your mind's going to be at, that, at the right time to innovate? But... The, you need to get everybody thinking in that in that way of yes, sh share ideas whenever, and we will come back to you. We will 
review those ideas and then have a forum to, I don't know, to, to talk them through or to build on them, etc. But I, I guess that's what I'm I'm asking, do you have to look at cultural change as well when you're moving into that more innovative, automated mindset? Without a doubt. I, th- I think, um, I mean, two things. There. I think as far as, uh, you know, the same story really. I think it's, um, crikey, is it Eisenhower? Is that you can, you can wreck a good strategy with bad tactics, but you can save a bad strategy with good tactics. And what I mean by that is the fact that um, if you fundamentally get good people thinking about how best to do things and, and give some platform that that gets aired and it's the opportunity to get people to, uh, to contribute to it and, and it does have impact uh, and you do make changes and that is moving into more agile and easier for, for um, sort of more modern sort of uh, digitally um, uh, sort of um, uh, digital native type organization, shall we say, a lot more flat structures. It's a little easier. So I do understand fully that very sort of more mature, deeper seated organizational enterprises have a, have a, a different challenge. But it's about teaching the leadership and the middle managers to promote that sort of, that again, that sandpit piece. Is the culture has to be risk-free. It has to be something where you come up with a good idea, you're giving great accountability for it, and actually it's not just about the tech, it's also about changing the processes. But I also come back to the fact that uh, how do you make that systematic? I, I, going back to the three o'clock pizzas, I mean, people won't turn up for those. You, you Even when you schedule in your calendars, let's go and, and have a chat about this. Well, you know, I've, I've been so many times when I've turned up in organisations, the last time that team of people actually met together was when I was last in the building uh, and you think well what's happened in the last weeks days months whatever it was when I was last here and it's like well you know it's BA it's BAU <clears throat> so there's a couple of things there one is I think if you can get cross teams of people cross functions of people working together then habitually they will learn more anyway it's not just about innovation it's not just about how you manage change and how you deliver it and getting people accountable for it they have an opportunity to learn from cross-function colleagues their challenges their frustrations the impact that i might have on the finance team about not filling my expense form in correctly which i probably used to do quite regularly you know very irritating it was all very clear why wouldn't i do it properly so when you actually sit and talk to people about the impact that has then it has an opportunity for you to well okay my world needs to improve, and, and there's ways. And, it, and it's symbiotic. It works, works both ways. I also take the view that we all are governed by Outlook. And, and to your po- earlier point about emails, crikey, what are those? You know, Outlook in calendars. We, we typically book meetings in permutations of 30, meeting, uh, 30 minutes. Now, why is that? Yeah. Um, I, I expressly state that try and take as many meetings out of your calendar. So it's a bit difficult nowadays. It's worse because of the pandemic hybrid working, Zoom times or Teams times or wherever the, the, the vehicle might be, you know, you, you, you schedule things to, you know, uh, the, 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 you're at the mercy of the calendar schedule. You don't have the corridor conversations that actually can be quite inspirational. Now, how do you reinvigorate that? Well, I hybrid working will begin to percolate back to the hybrid part of hybrid is beginning to shrink already. I think people are seeing those frustrations. But the good news of that is the fact that you can begin to say, well, okay, let's look at your calendar. Let's work out how you're using time wisely. Let's make sure there's elements of your calendar that give you time to have your coffee, have your breathing space, 
talk to colleagues, don't have back-to-backs. The, you know, the worst phrase you have in an initiative environment is back-to-back meetings mm. because you just go from one to the other and you, got, you haven't even got time to, to think sort of thing. So how on earth can you be refreshed and be creative when you're just going bang, 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 bang? And that's got worse in the last couple of years. So I think, I think culturally... Better, better management training to get interstitially down into your organisation to, to inspire people to think. Practicably, just look at your calendars, all of us. We all do things by half an hour or an hour. We can do better management. We can put better time into our calendars that's more sociable, that gets people out of the business, that gets people talking to cross-function colleagues and work it out. And I think then you begin to get organisations to speak differently with regards to what their own processes can look like and how they can be innovative across the, across the whole enterprise. That's a really good point, Dave, and, and I think we've we've seen that um, we're where we're not getting those water cooler moments or those uh, opportunities that you get pre-meeting, post-meeting that you used to get um, before the pandemic, where you'd have individuals that could uh, talk through uh, certain ideas that might be in completely different departments or at completely different levels within a business being able to interact when they usually wouldn't have the chance to do so. No, I, I totally agree. And, and and we don't know what we're losing uh, because we, it's never measured, of course. But um, that, that symbiotic relationship, I use that word a bit, a bit too much, but um, en- enterprises have an opportunity to uh, um, really establish what the best working environment is because things have changed um, and we can pluck the best bits out of what, whatever's been going on, etc. But one of the areas I think which is either overlooked or, or overthought, I'm not quite sure which the best way is, that, but I, I've seen enterprises where they, they are worrying about, um, if you like, a, um, a horizontal line in their organisation that is beneath which are the young ones starting that don't use emails, that, that basically transact their business through WhatsApp and or LinkedIn or whatever it might be. They use different mechanisms, so that's what they're used to. Um, and organisations are worried about this sort of this plimsoll line of people coming up from you know from recent graduates and millennials etc. How on earth are they going to work with the older ones, the ones that are over fifty years old, have got all the knowledge, um, and it's almost like there's a stress line there somewhere that they're not quite sure how to manage. And my my, my experience of of a particular enterprise when we were doing some work with them, you know, how do you manage your innovation? Large, massive organisation etc. Um, and I said, well, can you not think about it's not a horizontal line, it's a vertical line because I, I see a lot of organisations that don't quite capitalise on the fact that it's a mindset thing, it's not an age thing. Um, and you've got people that might even be nearing retirement that are fantastically innovative in the way they work. That are They've got enough knowledge and experience around them to know that the technology that is transformative, that can change things, but actually you can still deliver and bring the business with you because they've got that overarching knowledge of how things go. Uh, and their interaction with the younger elements that have got all the ideation and this is how we should be doing it. Why do we do it like this? We do it this way. It's better. And, and that sort of um, that, that dialogue seems to have been lost. And, and either enterprises aren't capitalizing on it because they're worried about this, this line of how do we get the young ones to talk to the older ones. Uh, whereas if it, was a, if it was a vertical line, then we actually can actively mix the, the right mindsets of people to get the transfer of knowledge, whether it's an experienced knowledge from, a, from an older work colleague or a younger person thinking, you know, we don't have to do it like that. It's more efficient if we do it like this. The, the world has changed and, and the, you know, everyone's sort of uh, natural use of tablets and, and menu bars and, and interactive devices nowadays that maybe the older people don't quite think 
well, I don't think we can do that on a small screen. Well, yes, we can. So I, I think enterprises have got a massive opportunity to think about it differently. It's a vertical line. Get the mindsets thinking, no matter what the age, but transfer all the knowledges. Don't think about a sheer plane that's horizontal because you've got a problem with people coming in working differently. I think it's a massive opportunity there at a behavioural level. It's that's really really interesting, and it's it, it, listening to you here. It, it almost sounds you alluded to this at the beginning with your use of um, the D word. Uh, it feels like people will talk about well, we must do automation, we must look at AI, we must look at data, we must look at digital. There, there's the buzzwords that people are focusing on, but actually, it's it boils down to what are you trying to achieve as a business. How do we get you there as efficiently as we possibly can? And how do you allow yourselves to, to, to give yourselves time to think forward about where you're going to need to be in five years' time? No, I, I, I mean, none of this is rocket science, as we all know. Um, uh, I, I think, you know, for, for years we've been suggesting that projects fail because of the people, nothing to do with the technology. Um, uh, and that, that, I, that's, that's a 100% statement that's not wholly accurate but you know that the the variance is how you get people on board to to instigate change to deliver change the uh, even the early ideas of how on earth do you another area of interest for me is, is how on earth do you specify a, a a real shift of what your company and what your enterprise wants to do when a delivery program might be five years and you want to be state of the art in five years' time. So how do you how do you predict what we're going to be doing in five years, even in five years, which doesn't seem like anything? Um, so how do you go through that ideation process and that selection process and that sort of specification? How do you select your partners? How do you culturally have a, be in step with your partners at such an early phase when you think, well, okay, we're actually committing at this phase for another five years of, of serious engagement to get to a really competitive advantage spot? And how do you answer all the what are we going to do? Why on earth are we doing this? Comes back to really top of the call. Walking into a room, you know, okay, we'll talk about this massive transformation that we're thinking about. Well, why are you doing it? What's the problem? You know, do you really understand why you're where you are and what you want to achieve? And I think that sort of really guttural knowledge of how you can explicitly put that into a specification, build a team, educate the team, work with your partners, work in step with your partners, have, have integrated systems that means you can be pretty open book with regards to what you're trying to achieve. Um, you know, I think the world is changing in that. We used to have an angst of IT and business used to specify a program, and heaven forbid, it used to go through a procurement process. It used to come out the other side completely wrecked. Yeah. Well, we did a great job because procurement are target on saving 10%. Well, you saved 10%, but it's going to cost us 50% in the long run. You know, that doesn't seem to fit anymore. And, and, and just to sub-edit sub to that, or sub-edit it to that, um, we've got a situation where innovation ideas and projects are going through the roof. There's probably, I think there's a reported 100% increase in enterprises trying to deal with major transformation projects now on technical side. They don't have the skills and capabilities to do that because whether it's furloughed, whether it's people have, resi uh, 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 have retired early, whatever it might be, there's a massive upsurge in significant outsourcing. So you're going to go back into that environment where you've got to manage, suddenly your team having to manage contracts, not necessarily manage the process and the data and the skills required. That, because it goes through a procurement process, means that you've got to have those, those relationships that could be offshore. And suddenly you're going back into that cycle of big offshore. The only way we can deliver massive change when it's technology is to go offshore again and to build a new teams. And that whole 
management process is so different, different skill sets, and and you have an, you must go back into the world of well, where's our IP? Where's our where's our niche competence? It's going away, we, you know, and there's a vulnerability to the business. So that whole dynamic needs to be explored as to you know how you can go forward and, and achieve what you do, what you want to achieve, whatever your process is to build the future and, and what your horizon will be, how secure you can make that picture look. The delivery mechanism is also another risk factor. Whether you build your own competency, whether you go outsource, how you manage that, and that, that, you know, there's there's disruption in, uh, along the way in that regard as well. Fantastic, Dave. Thank you so much. Uh, I think we're uh, we, we've got some really good insight there from from you on a, a range of different subjects, and I think we could keep talking for 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 ages. To be honest, look, thank you so much for your time. There's been really interesting subject. As I say, we could talk for for hours and hours on this. Um, and if any of our listeners do want to get hold of Dave, they can either contact Practicus and ask us for his details, or you can find him on LinkedIn at Dave Griffin or uh, Surrey Innovations. And you can reach me at dave.kemble at practicus.com or lawrence at lawrence.hill at practicus.com. Thanks ever so much. Dave, been a pleasure. No, it's, pleasure's been mine. Thank you very much. Thanks ever so much.